Welcome back, riders around the world. My name is Gary Solomon, and you're watching the Laidback Bike Report. Well, it's great to have all you band riders back with us again today, folks. We are so happy to have you. Let me tell you about what's going on in today's show. We have, first of all, our friend Hansa Gala coming in with the recumbent News in 5, as always. We've got uh, Dave Ashenbrenner back uh, to give us an update on the AR3, otherwise known as the Lost Recumbent. The Tilting Trike, uh, he is ready to get that out into the market. You'll enjoy what he's got to show you there. Our major uh, guest, uh, featured guests today, uh, is the British Human Power Club. So we are excited to have uh, some members of the club with us today. We will introduce to you to talk all about what I think, and many others agree, is probably the premier uh, human-powered vehicle club uh, organization in the world. So uh, stand by for that. Let's see, Doug Davis, of course, Mr. Wizard is with us uh, with another uh, Road Fixes for Your Bent uh, segment. He's always got something uh, kind of crazy to show you, uh, and he's got another really good one today. And Nina Paley, our retro futurist, of course, is back with us, and she's got a segment today to talk to you about the bicycle of future, uh, as always. So we look forward to seeing Nina as well. Well, let me, uh, if I could, at this uh, time, show you who is helping me out uh, on the show today. We've done a little shuffling around, unshuffling. It's been a little crazy, but uh, there they all are. First of all, uh, back with us again. We, we've missed him uh, from Zaltzgitter, Germany. It is Lars Kamm, our director today. Hey, Lars. Hi, folks. Good to be here. It's really good to have you back, Lars. Uh, out in Colorado Springs, uh, he's our utility guy. And boy, you have no idea. He was ready to go with a couple of other uh, utility features today. But uh, he's going to be doing the banners and the videos today. Larry Seidman in Colorado Springs. Hey, Larry. Hey, Gary. Ready to go. That's great. Also, down in Jackson, Mississippi, it is our media dude. It is Trey Burgoyne. Hiya, Trey. Howdy, y'all. Good to be here. All right. Let's see. The aforementioned uh, Mr. Wizard, Doug Davis, down in Dallas, Texas. His, uh, he's ready to go. There's the uh, background of his store right behind him. Doug. Great to have you back. Doug uh, is a professional, by the yeah, way. Well, I just hit the wrong mute button thing here. So uh, uh, we were saying how great it was <laughs> to have you with us. I think that's where we were. Is that where well, we were? Somewhere, I don't, don't, don't know. It's great to be here, and it's great that I can find the right button to click on this thing. Right. We'll be looking for that button again soon. So thank you. It's really <laughs> good to have you, Doug. Thank you. And uh, let's see, in the Czech Republic, uh, dealing with an, another lockdown, apparently, it's our pal Hansa Gala from Recumbent.News. Hi, Hansa. Hello, everybody. It's really good to have you back with us. And uh, let's see, in uh, Champaign-Urbana, I believe, 
back with us once again, our pal Nina Paley. Hello, Nina. Howdy. Good to have you with us. We look forward to uh, hearing from all of you guys later on. So let's at this point uh, move on with uh, the next uh, thing I've got to tell you about, which is our live chat. Uh, I like to um, remind you guys that uh, running along with uh, Facebook and YouTube live web, our YouTube and Facebook live webcast, we have uh, live chat going in. We can see that, respond to it. I can pop them up on the screen if it's a question or a comment uh, that needs to be um, pointed to one of our guests. So please avail yourself of that. Uh, you can also just chat amongst yourself, ask questions of our panelists. Uh, it's just a great way to uh, participate in a social manner on the show. So live chat if you can, and don't forget to tell us where you are watching from. Uh, guys, if you could, uh, you can support us in a number of ways. You can like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, there's a little applause button right down here on YouTube as well. You click uh, that, send us a couple bucks that way. There's a little white eye right up there that might pop up, and that'll take you to our website, laidbackbikereport.com. There you'll find out all about what we do uh, our past shows, uh, what we have coming up, all sorts of things. And also, uh, there's a little button that'll take you to our Patreon page uh, where you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And these guys right here with the orange P symbols are all Patreon. So we would appreciate any support you guys can give us. Uh, so, and thank you for those of you who have. Now, we also are supported by some amazing sponsors. Let me tell you about them. First of all, TerraCycle. Makers of exquisite recumbent parts and accessories for your bent. And Trailside Trikes, a fine recumbent trike shop on the Withacoochee Trail in Florida and also now in Knoxville, Tennessee. And Cruise Bike, designed for the cyclist who wants to ride farther, climb faster, and adventure more. All cruise bikes and frame sets ship free in the USA. And... TerraTrike Greenspeed, the best in leisure performance, adventure, touring, electric, and portability. Wherever your adventure leads, TerraTrike will take you there. And Greenspeed's Ian Sims, who designed performance through science and engineering, some of the greatest trikes you'll ever see. And Laidback Cycles, the top USA dealer for TerraTrike and the premier source for CatTrike, Ice and green speed. We give you the freedom to ride and recumbent cycle con. Please join us at the 2021 recumbent cycle con trade show and convention, which will be held October 9th and 10th at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds in Dayton, Ohio. For more information, check out recumbentcyclecon.com. All right, guys. So let's, I think at this point, move on to Hansa. Uh, Hansa, come on up here for a second. We'll say hi and uh, share the view. Uh oh, I'm not sure exactly where Hansa is. All right. It doesn't matter while Hansa's, while we're working this out, let's go ahead and play uh, Hansa's video. Hello, everybody. Here I am, Hansa Gala with recumbent news. Uh, there haven't been many of them in uh, February, but I have a great feeling from the fact that many recumbent events 
are in preparation at the moment for this coming season. And we have uh, things to, and events to look forward to them. Uh, and uh, I hope we will be able to spend time together again, to ride together and so on. The Spezi show in Germany will have only its online form in April, but uh, Hardy is planning uh, an offline version, the real version in middle September, just 14 days after the Eurobike, the biggest bike show in the world, where you can see recumbents as well. Uh, by the way, it will have two public days uh, this year, which is exceptional because it's normally just a professional show or show for professionals. And then, of course, the recumbent cycle con in October. Uh, and I, I hope I will be able to see you all uh, there, either in uh, Denton, Ohio, during the recumbent cycle con or in Germersheim during the Spetsy show. Also, some of the rallies are being prepared, uh, like the 2021 uh, cruise bike ride retreat, which has been announced just a few days ago. And then I have just one uh, more news for this time. It is the, the fact that uh, Northern Light Motors released uh, it's the prices for the new 428 uh, Velomobile, a serial hybrid electric Velomobile. I know that many people don't think such vehicles can be called Velomobiles. Uh, they consider them light electric vehicles or uh, they give them any other name. I don't care so much about the name. I just hope that such vehicles, uh, we will see uh, more of them riding the streets in the near future. The 428 will start at uh, 3,270 euros or 3,844 uh, dollars. And that's all from me for now from the portly snowy Eastern Czech Republic where we still have a serious lockdown at the moment. So have a great time and see you soon somewhere. All right. Oh, Hansa, are you back with us? It might be frozen up. So he, he sent a message to me saying that he was having trouble with the internet. So go ahead and single shot me if you would then Lars and I'll continue on. Thank you very much, Hansa. I'm glad you sent us the video. It looks like we had a problem there. I do have a little something to add in the news as well. Um, Many of you already know from seeing online that uh, Catrike has discontinued the EOLA um, uh, trike that they brought out a couple of years ago. And I know there were a lot of questions around uh, what happened with that. So I reached out to uh, Mark Egland uh, from uh, Catrike and he sent me this message regarding the EOLA. Uh, hi, Gary. Yes, we discontinued the EOLA due to demand of our other models and the amount of current dealer orders in the queue. I am increasing uh, the production of those. Less fixtures and models will help with this. Also, the EOLA has a different component group than all other models, so having less SKUs 
will help our suppliers. Engineering is working on more automation in our factory as well. So this decision allows us to focus on our core products while increasing output. But we are doing really well with all the shortages in the bike industry. So thank you for sending that to me, Mark. And yeah, all of the, we talked about this before with uh, the, the COVID situation. There's a huge supply problem with all the manufacturers right now. And so this is just a choice that uh, Catrite made to uh, help to alleviate that. All right, guys, let's uh, move on to our guest segments. First of all, uh, we're going to start out with an update from a previous show. Uh, if you might, uh, you might recall that we had Dave Ashenbrenner on a couple of shows back talking about the lost recumbent and the tilting trike that he developed in the 80s, kind of lost the design and the trike and then came back and now is redeveloped it and has actually gone into uh, limited production with it. So uh, he wanted to share this update with you, showing you a little bit more detail about how it works and he's ready to go on it. So uh, he's also on live chat right now. So if you have a question, um, uh, it's, he's on there as the other e-bike guy. So you'll see him on chat on YouTube here uh, with that. So feel free to ask him questions about this. And with that, Larry, let's go ahead and, and uh, watch the video from Dave. All right. With us today, once again, is my pal, Dave Ashenbrenner. Dave, how are you today? Gary, it's a pleasure to be on again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, Dave, if you would, uh, why don't you give us a quick summary of what the AR3 is all about? Well, it's my tilting uh, three-wheel tilting trike that I invented in the early 80s and had developed it, but um, there wasn't a market. We're redeveloping it, made a few changes on it, and uh, reintroducing it to the recumbent market. I think the market's ready for it. We've completed the first uh, production prototype, I call it. It actually is a production bike. This is a build log that you're gonna see with uh, parts that came in off the back of the semi, all the specialty bent parts. And uh, these have been assembled and put together. And uh, th those are the machine parts that came in. We've built jigs so that the frame um, was assembled properly. These are the frames all welded together, ready to go. This is the um, rear stay jig, and this is the yoke jig that we made. This is our welder going at it. <laughs> this is the all jigged up, pulled off the jig, and welded, ready for the next step. There's your integrity of the welds shot. Little lathe work going on on all the parts, some of the parts. This is the bottom bearing cup. The seat mold was made by uh, machining a piece of foam, medium density foam, and we used it for a vacuum former mold, which is on the vacuum former there. This is the sheet off the vacuum former, cut, trimmed, and this is pre-seat. That's after the seat has been put on there. This is a clamshell mold used to mold the rubber, this also, uh, to mold the rubber seat parts. It's like a waffle iron. You fill it up with the rubber and it reacts inside of it. And that's the finished piece. This is a neat little thing I uh, made for this. I thought to have a comfortable grip would be a very important thing. So we made it from clay from my hand and then we 3D scanned it and we 3D printed it after that. Um, all of these parts were prototyped with a 3D printer. 
including the logo. That's a shelf I'm illustrating. Two things. One is the support for the upper backrest and the shelf below it for the electronics. This is an e-bike uh, version. And this is um, right after I got done wiring it up. <laughs> well, I had the opportunity to show off the AR3 in its finished format. And uh, with no further ado, it's a center pivot steer. You'll see the caster on it forces the, the steering. When you lean the frame of the bike, it forces the steering to lean. The steering is activated by basically leaning and using the handlebars at the same time. It gives a feeling of a bicycle, almost. There's adjustable brackets down here I call bump brackets. And what happens is the as the bracket comes closer to the yoke, it, it's a stop. They're adjustable stops. And what you'll see here is it, you can adjust it real tight so that the tire almost comes in to the frame or to the seat here. Or if you're a little wider or that's uncomfortable for you to steer, you'll never have to worry about the tire hitting you. Your handlebar will come in to your leg first. If you want to adjust this so it doesn't turn as far, you would loosen these two screws and bring this bump stop up a little bit closer. The brakes are tied together with a T. When you hit one handle or the other, both brakes equally brake with the same pressure. The front chain ring is adjustable by loosening four bolts underneath here and sliding this whole assembly up or down the boom. The steering is unique on this. I call it active steering. You have to participate with your body and your arms to steer and maneuver this around the corners. The harder you lean, the easier it is to turn in the sharper corner you can go around. But when you're going at speed, when you're going around the corner, as in any vehicle, bicycle, two-wheel bicycle, motorcycle, or car, you're feeding it only a little bit of steering. So you're not going to get this lean effect in a real long, sweeping, fast turn. The sharper the corner, the more the wheels will lean and assist you going around the corners. You see the yoke is coupled to the main frame with a huge two-inch ball, sealed ball bearing right here. This is a bushing at the top. I'll describe how the steering works. The lean of the frame is coupled to the yoke. The frame is coupled to the yoke with these tie rods, which are anchored at the frame. They're also adjustable to give wheels more or less lean in a corner. The seat has a hard shell that's attached to the seat frame. This is part of the actual frame right here. It has an adjustable, not a headrest, this is a backrest. And what this does is it, what this does is your spine conforms instead of being laid straight back on a flat seat and cranking your neck to look forward over your knees. This curves your spine gradually and is adjustable to your liking. 
We're pretty proud of these grips. They've been designed ergonomically like you would find in a jet fighter plane with a thumb rest, with a thumb rest and finger indents. So you don't have to grip onto your handle grip. It's very comfortable. It includes a wrist rest. If you should loosen up your grip on it, you can rest your wrist on this. This is a question I get asked probably 50 times a day. Um, because it has the center pivot, is there any bump steer to this? And there's absolutely none. So many things have to happen at once for that wheel to come back toward you that the momentum that you have plus the weight on the frame will not allow that yoke to turn as you go over a bump. Yeah, I have the rare opportunity to be standing from the outside looking in and it's a, uh, it's a different way of looking at this and it, it really gives me an advantage um, to design something uh, without having to, you know, uh, stay in the box, so to speak. Now, Dave, you know, we've, we've seen what you've done with this, but I'm guessing this wasn't all on your own. Did you have uh, anyone else involved with helping you on this project? Yeah, I learned a long time ago to surround yourself with smarter people than you. <laughs> and that's what I've done. I've got uh, some really dedicated employees that have been with me for a long time. My wife, um, Richard Harvey Jr., I've mentioned him in all my videos. Uh, he came to work for us when he was still in his teens, I believe. And uh, most recently, Jonathan um, Ryan Ball, who is our welder and uh, great fabricator. He's got his own fabrication uh, business also. And I use him as much as I can when I can get a hold of him. Just a great guy. All right, Dave. So let's finish up talking about the, uh, the plans here for the immediate future. I already have actually taken money on two of them already. I have two of them sold. We have enough to build 12 additional uh, bikes. Uh, well, it would be 10 then minus those two. And uh, we're going to visit some dealers and uh, do some demo rides. Uh, you can go to KaziBikes.com, K-A-Z-E bikes plural.com and you'll get all the latest information there all right dave uh that sounds great so we look forward to uh seeing what happens to the ar3 i'm sure it's going to be a great success really interesting uh trike uh we wish you all the best and thanks for coming on the laid back back report one more time dave once again gary I really appreciate this and um i can't wait till to see the look on your face when you ride one of these <laughs> I can't wait either. As soon as I can get down there, buddy. We'll you see you it. soon. We'll see you. Thanks, Gary. Intriguing, as always. So, yeah, if you guys are interested, make sure you contact Dave. Uh, we'll have the uh, the KZ Bikes uh, link uh, down in the description below, of course. And uh, thanks again, uh, Dave. So, all right. Now on to our featured segment today. So, uh, you know, I was going to do this big introduction. I had it all planned. But then... G-Man Adventures on live chat actually came up with this. Uh, the British Human Powered Club, the best bunch of nutters I've ever met. I could not have said it myself. Folks, uh, please let me introduce you to Barney Harl, Chris Hamilton, and Alan Goodman from the British Human Powered Club. Guys, how are you today? Yeah, good. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having us on. <clears throat> It yeah, much, is, much appreciated, Gary. 
Chris, yeah, unmute yourself too. You can say hi so we can hear you. I'm... Yeah, hi Gary. Yep, I'm doing good. Good, good. Well, it's great to have you guys. Uh, these guys have worked very hard to put together the program uh, with me, um, and they, you know, for a matter of weeks actually. So uh, I hope you guys will really enjoy this. Let's uh, get started here uh, by actually talking uh, about the very early history of the club. Now, uh, none of these gentlemen you see in front of you right now were involved in the very early history of the club in the 1980s. But who was involved and one of the founding members uh, was Dave Larrington. Um, and uh, he uh, was kind enough to share some of his thoughts about uh, the early days. I had a chance to interview him and he's on video. We're going to take a look, Larry, if we can right now, the early history of the BHPC. All right, folks, we are here today with Dave Larrington, one of the founding members of the British Human Power Club. Dave, how are you today? Yeah, pretty good. It is great to have you with us. Dave, can you start out by telling us uh, a little bit about the origin story of the British Human Power Club? Yeah, um, if we go right back to the prehistory, there was... Um, and recumbents um, when he was um, in the in the US and uh, prior to the founding of the club we did run a couple of fairly major events in the UK in 1980 and 81 I think it was which consisted of 200-metre sprints on the seafront at Brighton and road races on a couple of different motor racing circuits in the south of England. Um, and Richard had also brought back from the States an Avatar 2000 recumbent bike, which uh, a friend of his, a guy called Derek Hendon, equipped with a fairing, full fairing, and this became known as Bluebell, and they took that back over to the States to race a couple of times. And uh, it ended its life crushed into a fence post in the velodrome in San Jose. And undeterred, they built another one for the races in 1981, and that one got destroyed when it crashed at Brands Hatch. And come 1982, we hadn't managed to find a sponsor for a big event like the first two. But instead, we managed to piggyback ourselves onto the Isle of Wight Cycling Festival, which was held over the Easter weekend in 1983, rather. Um, so 1982 was a bit of a quiet year. In 1983, we went to the Isle of Wight for this festival. And this is where I first became involved in uh, it was my first HPV race. Machine in the first in the in the main picture um, there is was known as the Flying Greenhouse, which is a it was a conventional upright tandem with a a fairing made out of thin clear plastic of some sort draped over it. it was pretty much unstoppable at road racing because it uh, went round corners pretty well. Um, in this photo, we see nearly all the wind cheaters then in existence. Uh, the designer and builder of same had been Mike Burroughs, notorious in HPV circles, and that is Mike on the left side of the photo, closer to the wall. 
um, other people present is closest to the camera is uh, Mike Cumberland, uh, who was a fellow engineering student of mine at Imperial College in London. Uh, in the middle, closest to the wall, is Andy Pegg. Andy, for a long time, was Mike's number one works rider and was uh, an early racing champion once the BHPC got going. And next to him is a guy called Andy Hingley, who's generally known as Nigel, uh, after a cat that used to come into their bike shop in Norwich. And right at the back is me. This photo here is the, the front end of Bluebell, the third version of the fairing, which is very close to the ground and consequently got a bit banged up in the course of the races. Um, this is Tim Gartside, who at the time held the two-wheeled world speed record. The outright records at the time were still held by the Vector three-wheelers in the States. That Tim had done, I think, 57 miles an hour in the States. Uh, he's a, an Australian solicitor who was over in the UK for a couple of years. An action shot from the, the race. It's Mike Burrows in the foreground hanging out of the, uh, the side of the windsheet. It's the best way to keep all three wheels on the deck when going around corners and being pursued by the, uh, the flying greenhouse. Okay, Dave, that's that's really interesting. So now this race was very different from those previous kind of loosely gathered group that you had for the previous races. This race actually was the beginning of the British Human Powered Club in some way. Tell me about what happened after this race. Um, well, after at some point during that weekend, we I think it was probably on the Saturday night, we found ourselves in the pub in the seafront, on the seafront in Ride, and somebody, I can't remember who now, suggested it would be a good idea to form a club to promote this kind of thing at a grassroots level in, uh, in the UK. And uh, it sort of took off from there. A month or so, maybe six weeks later, we had the inaugural meeting of the, of the club at... Uh, now demolished circuit in East London called Eastway, um, when the and the club was formally constituted on the 29th of May 1983 with um, Mike Burrows as chairman, and uh, Richard was the editor of the first editor of, of the club magazine, which at the time was eight pages of A5 crudely photocopied and stapled together, uh, grown a bit into. Uh, a rather more professional and glossy magazine uh, since then. The spiritual home of the club for many a year was the Eastway Circuit in East London. Um, but, uh, the, the site of that was um, where they decided to build the Olympic Park for the 2012 Olympics. And unfortunately, Eastway was, uh, had to be demolished to make room for various bits of Olympic infrastructure. I think the the new velodrome is more or less where the circuit used to be. Um, so since then, the uh, the club's spiritual home has more or less been the, uh, the Hillingdon cycle circuit on the other side of London. Dave, do you have any interesting uh, stories that uh, relate to those early years of the club that you might want to share with us? Mm, I remember... Um, up the, the, at the end of 1983, we, it was decided that we should have a, 
actually have a, a race, a season-long championship. And uh, so I think, if I remember rightly, the first one of those was running at 1984 and was won by Andy Pegg riding for Mike Burrows. And one of the prizes that he got was the right to set fire to the old Bluebell fairing in the middle of the track. So uh, after the presentations of the rest of the trophies, we carted the old fairing out into the infield and doused it with paraffin and set it on fire. So made a, made a lovely, lovely blaze. Because uh, the the old Bluebells were built out of wooden stringers with fabric, dope fabrics draped over them and they built a new one from fibreglass and carbon fibre reinforcement, reinforced stringers. So the old one was surplus for requirements, so why not give it a Viking funeral? All right, Dave, thank you so much for sharing those wonderful stories and the uh, the origin of uh, the BHPC. It's uh, it's great to hear uh, about what uh, about happened what in the early in days, the early and, days uh, and we're going to flesh out the rest of it here shortly on the show. So I want to thank you for coming on and lending the past knowledge of the club to uh, to our viewing audience and the laid back bike report. Thanks a lot, Dave. My pleasure. All right, there was Dave Larrington. Guys, you can unmute yourselves now if you would. And uh, Dave Larrington is on the live chat. So, uh, folks, if you have uh, questions uh, or comments for Dave, feel free to pop them into the live chat here on YouTube, and I'm sure he'll respond. He uh, he clearly loves the history of the club and has been an important part of it. Um, Mike Mowat made that comment about uh, Battle Mountain and and uh, Dave's part in it. And so I think we're going to uh, maybe move along with that in mind. Um, Trey, if we can have slide 13, and I'm going to have Alan talk about this a little bit. So Dave uh, has been uh, very involved with uh, Battle Mountain right from the start, the uh, Human Powered Speed Challenge uh, that takes place in Nevada every year. Um, and uh, Dave sent me this information about uh, some of the contributions that the club has made over the years. Alan, why don't you just briefly talk about uh, the uh, the Battle Mountain uh, sub, uh, contributions the club has had? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never actually been myself, unfortunately, but uh, Dave and uh, Jonathan Mordred usually are over there every year. Jonathan has certainly been involved in organizing, actually, so I think they've, they've both contributed to running the event as well as going over there and help you know helping out and all the rest of it um but you can see from the list that dave's produced there we've had a lot of british entries over the year over the years and and they've done well I, you know we've had some record breakers recently we've had uh yasmin i know as a uh, set of british ladies record over there um arm powered we've had um karen dark and ken talbot both setting records over there in, in arm powered machines which has been really good so it's, uh, yeah, and everything from that to uh, early on, uh, you mentioned Jonathan Woolrich, who actually organized and ran the event for a couple of years in the early 2000s, which was uh, amazing as well. Yeah, and he and Dave are both going over there until recently. I know Dave still goes every year. You know, I'm, I'm sure he'll be 
looking forward to going back as soon as we're allowed to do that sort of thing again. Very good. Yeah, hopefully maybe this year or next for sure. So, mm -hmm. all right, let's move along, uh, Trey, to the next slide. And I'm going to ask uh, Alan uh, now to... Um, to tell us about the uh, the Constitution, how it relates to the actual purpose of this club. Tell me a little bit about uh, what the club is all about, Alan. Yeah, there's, there's, there's sort of two main things that we do, really. We, we run a series of races for bikes that aren't allowed to race with sensible people. So we have to, you know, have to have some way of, of allowing people that think outside the box to compete. And that's, that's where the British Human Power Club came from, because... People have got these crazy bikes that, that were faster than or normal bikes, but they just didn't have anywhere they could go and play with them. So that, that was that was where it really came. So, yeah, you guys created this club to allow that. And so now let's actually uh, talk about one of the main uh, purposes and features of the British Human Power Club, and that is racing. So uh, we're going to spend the next uh, bit of time actually talking about uh, racing, your experience with it. And we're going to have Chris uh, talk about uh maybe some of the details of uh, timing and how the races are uh, constructed. So let's start sure. out, Alan, if we could, though, uh, with your slides. Let's go on to the next slide, and I'm going to let Alan talk about uh, the slides that he sent me. This is where I came in. That's, that's my twin brother, Dave, actually, beside me there. Um, we always used to do a, an event at Goodwood, which was like a, a charity, British Art Foundation charity event every year. And I was on a upright bike, you know, rolling around there, thinking I was going okay. And then... Dave and his next door neighbour had been to the championships in 2001 in Brighton and seen all these machines. And, and David built this bike. And the, the main tube of that is actually an exhaust pipe. He, he, he always says that the only bit of carbon he's ever had on a bike was was, was inside that. So that, it really was a, an exhaust pipe off, a car, off an old car that he, he found somewhere. But that, that's, that's where that came from. So he built that. We went down to Goodwood in 2002 and they were lapping me. I'm not having this. So I bought that King Cycle that I'm sitting on there, and they were still lapping me. But <laughs> even so, so we went to Milton Keynes. This was our first BHPC race, actually, at Milton Keynes in sort of back end of 2003. There was just a couple of races left in in the year, and we went along and had a play. And Dave actually went quite well in that race. I think he finished third or so in in the in the uh, star race there. And I was wobbling around at the back, just laughing at everybody and being silly as always. And it's, but it's been good and. Sort of, uh, still wobble around at the back at most races now, really. That's at the same event. That's Adrian and Claire, two of our long-standing members on their Mitquick um, tandem, back-to-back -back tandem, as you can see. Those so, are crazy, yeah. It's crazy. It's certainly crazy when, you, when you're following. It looks so strange, you know. <laughs> yep. extremely nice. I, yeah. I can just add, it's really strange if you follow it and Claire throws her chain off. <laughs> yeah. If you're yeah. slipstreaming that when the, the stoker throws their chain in your face, you do worry. <laughs> just trying to tell you something though Barney. <laughs> and this was Eastway this was um Dave Larrington was talking this piece about Eastway that that eventually was destroyed to make the Olympic Park but this was a historic track you know this was proper a proper brilliant road racing circuit with some hills and some bends <laughs> that's the same event this this was actually the 21st anniversary of um the British Indian Power Club so there's some of the founding members there's Dave in the middle there looking a little younger and Richard Ballantyne, Mike Burroughs, and Dennis, um, some some of the people that were there from the word go. I think you say it's blowing out some candles in a minute because we had a we had a cake. There you go. So this was uh, that was our twenty first anniversary, and this, that was new to me. Really, I was I was just sort of sitting in the background there somewhere. But uh, that, 
that's um, one of our circuits. That's Castle Coombe. That's a big open two and a half mile around um, motor racing circuit. So that's sort of, that's great for the streamliners. At my speed, there are no corners. You just flat out all the way. And it's, um, but the, uh, <laughs> somebody's saying they bring back back-to-back -back tandems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, a track that suits the faster straight line machines, really. But as you'll see in a second, we have tracks that suit everybody. So that's uh, that's York, which is a, one of the newer circuits. And it's got a bit of everything there. You've got a little velodrome, outdoor velodrome, 250 metre velodrome that we outdoors, of course. And so if it's wet, it gets a bit scary. Um, but around it, and just to the right of it, you can see the road circuit, which has some decent corners, some very tight corners, actually. Um, so when we go there, we can put on a variety of events. We usually have it so that it co coincides with a, a cycle rally that takes place in York. So there'll be lots of people around that are interested in um, cycling and in, in general. And some of those will usually come along and it's probably the first time they've seen recumbents racing. So it's always a good opportunity for us to, to show off. Really. <laughs> but um, yeah, and that, that's, that's Hillingdon, which is... Uh, we go there twice a year. It's a great little circuit in London. It's always well attended because it's because it's in London. Um, it's useful to have um, something that's fairly. Uh, on, on, if you look at the track, you can see there's there's some, some decent bends and a, a, a long straights. It's got a bit of everything. And what you can't see there is it's actually quite hilly as well. There's uh, a few lumps there, not sort of. Not mountains, but big enough for somebody to launch a bit of an attack if they're if they're in a group. So it works well. It's a good a good track and one we we'll, we always go back to. So uh, and that one is Stourport. That's a really twisty track. This is a bit of a leveler actually. The the streamliners and the velomobiles don't like that because they they struggle to get around the tight hairpin. Um, there's actually you can't just off the off the end of the bottom right of that screen. There's a there's another hairpin. So there's two. You know, really tight airpins that you have to um, slow right down for, and and if it's wet, that gets really slippy. So that we often have an unfair part-fed bike beating the the streamliners there, and that's always always good fun. But we have a, a yeah wide range of tracks. To see. But that's, that's Mike Mike Burrows, of course, who uh, one of the founders of the club, and everybody knows him from the machines he's designed. That's that's one of the later rat racers with all the fully enclosed uh, drive. That's at Hillingdon, actually, one of the one of the little corners at Hillingdon. But, uh, Mike was racing it all the time up until fairly recently. That's um, Steve Stade slash in the Beano. All the while I've been racing, I can't ever remember anybody beating Steve uh, in, in a BHBC event unless he's had a puncture or crashed. He always wins. And uh, so if anybody wants to come along and challenge him, I'm sure he'll be uh, pleased to see you. Uh, that's that's the the best machine and the best rider we've currently got, and that's uh, that's my nephew Liam actually in a machine that's, that's not so. That's uh, Jonathan Woolridge we, we mentioned earlier has been doing a lot of work on that, and I think it's being developed even further. It's going to have a bubble over his head for this season, um, so hopefully he'll be going a bit quicker. He's been been going pretty well, and uh, it's good to uh, good to see that. This is there's Jonathan actually on the on the left of that picture. Um, Jeff Bird, who's our magazine editor at the moment, we'll see him, we'll speak a bit more about that later on, and Lee Wakefield on the right there. That's Jeff's latest machine. It's a fantastic looking three-wheeler um, that he's been developing. It's, it's gradually getting faster. 
he's, he's built that from scratch. Um, he's built some amazing machines over the years, and and that's you know so far the pinnacle of what he's what he's achieved. Pretty similar to what to what Barney builds, really. You'll see later. <laughs> these, these are our hand cyclists. We've got a um, a lot of hand cyclists joining us now. That was at Darlingmore. We had a, a full grid of them. They run their championship alongside ours now. Um, it just works well for this there. You know, they can't race in. They're not allowed like us. Not allowed in proper races a lot of the time. Proper bicycle races. Um, so they come along, play with us, and some of them are very fast. I mean, they'll average well over twenty mile an hour on a flat circuit and they are amazing so it's, it's great to great to see them we've got some paralympians among them and um and that's as that slide there shows you actually that we, we've hosted the world championships a few times now starting back in 2001 and obviously we gary we were very pleased to see you and laid back bike report at um at family better sanger back in 2018 that was really great weekend and i was gonna say that's where i actually met uh, all these uh what do they call you nutters uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the great the great guys uh I, I actually met all three of these guys at uh at betsanger uh park for the 2018 yeah right uh, yeah. world championships and uh it was just great fun and what a great club um Thank you, Alan. That was that's a great introduction to some of the racing that goes on. And uh, Chris is going to uh, here shortly tell us more specifically about how that racing goes. We have this uh, comment, and uh, we talked about this a little bit before the show. Maybe this is a good point to pause and uh, have a little discussion. So, Lucas Garrison, thank you for the show thus far. I've been a longtime watcher. This first show I've watched live. I'm a human power enthusiast here in the USA. The world needs more HP clubs. So, yeah, well, we're, you're not going to get an argument. Thank you, Lucas, of course, uh, for that. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to get an argument from any of us on that. And I talked briefly to these guys about that. So I think, uh, as I had said earlier, this is a premier club. They have a lot to offer. And they set an example. And uh, one of the things we hope to do with this show is to help to promote around the world other clubs, either improving the clubs that are there, uh, reaching, branching out into other aspects of what is available, like the British Human Power Club does, or even starting a club. So um, before we get into Chris, yeah, I, I'm interested in your guys' opinion about what you would suggest to someone maybe who wants to start one or improve a club around the world. What it needs is somebody to do it. Somebody like Lucas is just, you know, he's recognised that it's needed. So it needs somebody to to step up and start it. I'm, I'm sure if, it, you know, it could start with something like a Facebook group. You just put it up there and you'll find you've got loads of people that are like-minded and, and want to do it as well. That's, that's, that's all it needs really is a few people to come together. It's probably a little easier for us because we're a relatively small country. You know, I mean, we're... We're about as spread out as we can be. Barney's up north, as you know, when, when he starts to speak, I, I can't understand him most of the time. But we're, um, we're even so, we're all uh, sort of a couple of hundred miles apart. So our, our races, most of the time, we're only travelling 150 miles at most. You know, whereas obviously in a, mm -hmm. a bigger place, it would be tricky. But you might have to have regional events or something. But yeah. it, there would be a way around it. But the interesting yeah. thing to see is that the BHPC came from those founding half a dozen people on the Isle of Wight who were mainly London-based. You know, as, as Alan says, Facebook groups are often a way to break this. One of our local riders in West Yorkshire 
has just posted a thing recently about a Facebook group for recumbent riders in West Yorkshire. That's, you know, it's four cities, West Yorkshire. It's not very big at all. Um, Two million people. Within a matter of minutes, 30 people had signed up to that group, most of whom weren't aware of the BHPC, most of whom weren't in any form of recumbent riding or racing club. But suddenly you've got 30 other people who live within 10 miles of you whose friends have seen this group, it's been recommended through, and it starts, you've suddenly got 30 riders within 10 miles. Yeah, and the racing aspect of what you guys do is 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 a crux, I think. Now, we have a few racing groups here in this country, some of which that uh, have done very well over the years and then now seem not to do as well. Mike Mallard, uh, who is with us on chat, has been on the show a few times, and uh, they have had uh, racing around the country. But it seems as though what we see here in, in the U.S. is more uh, riding groups, just riding the trails, maybe riding the roads and that type of thing. But racing uh, as uh, um, as part of this club is so important to you guys and seems to be not so important elsewhere. You know, Australia may be another example of a place where they have some good clubs and some good racing. But I think the venues have something to do with it too. You guys have some, one, as we just saw, some wonderful venues. Uh, and uh, I think that attracts people to racing too. Is, is that fair to say? It is, and I think the other thing that, that's for, certainly for me when I started was attractive is that the racing is a part of it. I've always seen them as social events as well. Um, I think for most for most people, if you come along and take uh, our events too seriously, you're probably in the wrong place. If you're, I mean, I remember we, we had somebody turn up at a, at a race once, and, and we're, we're notorious for for not getting our events off started on time. He come up to me, he goes, "Oh, I thought this was going to start at eleven o'clock." He said, "Because I, I had my meal at nine, because I was I, mean, I was getting ready." Yeah, you're in the wrong place, mate. You know, and, and when he started, it, it, it was his first time. He turned out he was, he was there was a, it was actually a university that built this bike, and they got this super duper fit rider in he fell off on the first corner anyway so it probably wouldn't have made much difference if he did it a bit later <laughs> which made everyone else laugh and that just added to the social yeah. aspects yeah, of the the key thing really is, is that there's such a range of people right there's a wide range of machines obviously but we've got sort of old people like us young people we get kids racing and there's always somebody who's about the same speed as you that you can have a bit of a race with and um, so it doesn't really matter if you're not, none of us are athletes, you know, but it doesn't really matter how, how good or, or, or bad you are. You can still have a bit of fun and have a race. And it's, that's, that's what they're for, really. And a, a bit of advice to Lucas, if he did want to start a club or if anybody wanted to start a club, there is a ready-made formula here. They could The BHPC can give you the software, the racing classes. That instant startability is there that they could just copy the BHPC um, I mean, you'll you'll never copy the friendliness of the club. It is incredible, but it's there that you know it's instantly there. This came from nothing. It's there that people could copy if they wanted to, and we are so friendly that people would lend advice, software, racing classes, rules as we have them um, to help somebody start up. There you go. I think that's so important. I, I'm glad we had a chance to uh, bring this out. A very important part of what we're trying to do here today. So, and of course, your your contact information, as always, I'll, I'll have it in the description so people can get a hold of you. All right, let's pursue this racing a little bit further and find out a little bit more about it from Chris. So, uh, Trey, if we can put up the 32, I guess 
is uh, Chris's first slide. And uh, Chris, uh, take it from there. You can just tell Trey as you want him to move on to the next slide and tell us uh, tell us more specifically about racing there with the club. Okay, hi guy. Yeah, so it's, it was really interesting to hear earlier what Dave Larrington said about about the first races were in 1983 because in 1983 I was I was only just old enough to start my first paper round and start saving for my first racer at the time. So uh, yeah, that's a long while ago. So yeah, I mean. So I'm just going to do sort of like a just like an outline of what of how we kind of sort of run our races today. And like and like Alan said, one of the, one of the benefits, I guess, one of the benefits we have is, um, you know, because we're you know sort of like like a relatively small country, um, uh, you know, uh, people don't have to travel really really far, you know, to kind of you know to actually get to events. And so and this so this diagram here is just a um, this is just like a a map where all those red dots show most of the places in the uk where there's either cycle circuits or motorcycle circuits um, and race circuits that can actually be hired and used for you know and used for racing and, and the spread across there from from left to right at the widest point there is only about 250 miles so um so for most people at least most people in this kind of sort of bottom lump of the country uh you know it is it is possible to um you know to at least get to you know like one or one or two races a year that are, that are within reach um, yeah. So next, next slide, please, Trey. Okay. So, um, so every year we we basically each year we have a BHPC championship. We run we run twelve races, twelve races a year, and those and those each year. I mean, the venues, some of the venues we regular venues each year, but we try and change one or two of them. You know, kind of sort of mix things up. Um, so we'll have races on you know sort of really big wide open circuits, small windy circuits. We usually like to try and fit a velodrome in once a year, um, an outdoor velodrome as well. And so here, this is I think this is from a couple of years ago, but it just shows sort of the spread of some of those events, um, you know, across the country. And again, to try and um, although you know people have to travel great distances, um, you know, to try and make it more worthwhile, people actually. Um, you know, traveling the distance, we, you know, we try and run some of our events rather than 12 separate single day events. We have a few which we run over weekends as well. Um, so, and some of those, some of those events we actually have where we've got, we're actually able to get kind of sort of camping on site, which is quite nice. But if not, people tend to, you know, through, through Facebook and the, and the BHPC forum, people tend to often coordinate, you know, um, you know, where they're going to, where they're going to go camping. So there is, you know, sort of like sort of collective groups. So again, it adds to the, Adds to the social element of the um of the of the whole thing. Um, okay, so next next slide, please, Trey. Okay, so um so we have about ten different race classes um as as, as well because obviously you know depending on the nature of the HPV you're driving, some are going to be much faster or slower than others. And so here here's just like a an outline of a few of them. So we have a we have a junior class for under for an under 16s, and we have a we have a women's class. And then, and then we have a street class, which is it's upright bikes um, and more sort of like sort of sort of street fairing kind of sort of commuter worthy uh, recumbents as well. And then we have a in the bottom left we have a we have a sports class, uh, which which generally tends to be sort of more kind of sort of high races. Um, and then we have a we have an unfaired class as well. So anything that doesn't have a fairing on counts as counts as unfaired. Um, and also low races would fall into into that class as well and then we also have part fed which you can see in the bottom right there um and that that usually counts is for part fed you either have like a rear fairing or a um or a front fairing and that would that would kind of class you as uh, as part fed okay so next next slide please try 
Okay, so we also have multi-track, so all all recumbent trikes, both both upright trikes and um, you know kind of low race recumbent trikes would be in the multi-track class. And then we have multi-track fared, which is which is generally Vaynermobiles. We have a we have a, we have a class for arm powered, and then we have an open class. And the open class is pretty much anything anything with two wheels that's fully fared is in open class. But some of those classes also kind of fold into each other as well. So when when we're competing, every time people race, you know, you get so many points for each race. And if you're let's for example, if you're in the multi-track class. Um, and you're racing against other multi-track vehicles. If you come first in multi-track, you get a certain number of points. But also across the whole race, there'll be other vehicles riding. So um, you will also get points in the open class as well. Um, so, and I'll, I'll explain a bit more of that in a, you know, in a, uh, you know, in a few slides time. Okay, next slide, please, Trey. Okay, so we have all these different race classes, and basically they all race together. So in a, at a, at a typical a typical race event, when when people turn up, we we try and make sure that everybody gets at least an hour's worth of an hour's worth of racing. And often, depending on the size of the field, um, you know, some venues will get you know sort of sixteen you know sixteen seventeen riders turn up, and other other ones will kind of you know sometimes get forty or fifty. And depending on the size of the venue and and the length of the race, we often split into slow race and a fast race. And so the slow race is just the people that aren't quite as fast as the fast races. Um, usually riders who are there for the first time, you know, people on sort of upright bikes or slower bikes tend to go in the slower race. And then the faster race is, is more more predominantly the more experienced riders, the streamliners, the Vaylermobiles, um, the low races. Because here, this, this 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 slide here is, I think this is our lineup at Scunthorpe Vaylermobiles. You can see there is quite a quite a casserole of, um, you know, different, you know, different types of vehicles and riders um, going on there. And as they're racing, because you've got all these different race classes at the same time, you've effectively got multiple races all going on within, you know, within the same within the same race. Okay, next 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 slide, please, Trey. So here's here's another example, just sort of illustrating, you know, the sheer sort of diversity of machines that you can get in a single, um, you know, in, in a single race, and that and I and then that's what kind of sort of makes it, you know, one really really great and interesting to watch. Also, Chris, if I can interrupt for a second, I'm sorry. We have a, a question from Simon Creasy, which are fat. And this is, may not be, you know, it depends on the bike, I'm sure. But uh, yeah. in your estimation, which is fastest than a rear fared or a front fared only? Ooh, I don't know. Bike. I've only ever ridden with a rear fairing. Um, I'd, I guess, I guess I would say, I'd, I'd say a rear fairing's faster. A front fairing is better in winter for keeping your toes cool, warm. So, uh, yeah, um, I think rear fairings are easier to make. Because you can often, if you make one, you can just like, you can make one and, you know, you can stick it on a bike rack or something at the back. It's often a bit more challenging to mount something on the front and keep it. Keep and it you can carry sandwiches in it. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah, yeah. The first fairing I ever had was, um, was you know, it had luggage compartments and all sorts in as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think more people have rear than, than front yeah. fairings. I, th all I right. think you'll find Mike Burroughs has done some testing and has proven that aerodynamically the rear fairing gives you, greater advantage than the front fairing and okay. within mike's books there is some advantageous science that proves that yeah he would know <laughs> <laughs> all right let's go ahead then chris uh okay. let's yeah so here so here his, his, his i think this is a this was a gravesend um um it might have been last year actually um yeah. where again you can see there's like a big sort of like kind of sort of quite a diverse lineup of vehicles and everyone in there is obviously like racing apart from the apart from the digger in the background which hopefully wasn't in that 
in that particular event. Um, but again, one thing that makes it makes it so interesting and great is you've got all these races going on. But often, even if even if you're not there for the racing, it's just the experience of, of riding around a circuit with such a diverse range of machines that in in most most days of day to day, you'd be lucky if you if you pass one of those kind of vehicles in the street you know in a month so uh so yeah you know it's really good for that and also off the circuit um because it's split into two races often while a race is going on you've got people at the sidelines and they're looking at nosing around comparing each other's vehicles you know um you know and so there is there is like a big kind of, sort of social element and aspect to it as well okay next next slide please so um so in terms of like timing the races um We've, we've kind of changed our timing system in the past past three or four years. Um, very, very early on, before I even started, it used to all literally be done where people would kind of sort of keep keep track of, they would have like a time stopwatch timing and people keep track with, um, you know, pieces of paper and just doing like kind of sort of five bar gates with a, with a pencil. Then we moved on to having like a whole set of stopwatches with, um, with lap counting on. And with, for every rider that was on the track, you'd have to find a buddy by the side of the track, he wasn't racing with a stopwatch, and they would literally count your laps as you went round. And then there'd be someone at the end; you'd um, you'd have to go up to them, and they'd write down on a piece of paper, um, you know, sort of the finish time of the riders and how many laps they'd done. Uh, we'd work things out that way round. But since then, we've um, we've gone electronic in the past few years, and now all riders get like a sort of like a like a like a tag, an electronic tag sticker that they put on the side of their usually on the side of the cycle hat. Um, and then you can't, I don't even quite see it in this diagram, but so Alan's kind of walking across the, the start line here and to the, to the left of him behind that wooden board is actually like a radio antenna. So basically every rider is registered and then they literally as they're riding, going around the track, um, every time they pass the finish line, it counts as a, it counts as a lap. And one of the, well, some of the big advantages of that are it's, um, it's much easier to do. You don't have to worry about getting distracted talking to each other on the sideline and missing counting laps. Um, but also if we have like a really big circuit and let's say it's a very wide open circuit and we've got 20, 25 riders, we can, we have the scope for running like a two and a half hour, three hour race with literally everybody almost in the race. So they can all be in the race and you just need someone to press the button on the computer and keep an eye on it at the sideline. And everyone can kind of be racing on the circuit at one time, which is good for flexibility. Okay, next, next slide, please. So um, yes, yeah, so here's just a just a diagram of our of our kind of our time our time lords as I like to like to call them. So so Andrew Andrew um, Sidwell and and Kim Wall there who've um you know who've both done a lot, a lot of really great work in putting the whole thing together. And these and these guys here, even though they're the ones who mainly sort of run the timing system, um, once it's set up it, and it works well. There's scope for these guys, although they're organizing their timing, they can still race. And sometimes you'll see you'll see one of these two just before a race, they get the whole thing set up. And then they literally just have to get someone to be ready to press the start button whilst they rush to get on their bike and join in the, you know, join in the Peloton to race around the race around the course, which is uh, which is really good. Okay, next sometimes you've left a 12-year-old in charge of the computer while everybody else goes racing. Yeah, well, they're generally more qualified than most of us to have to deal with it. So, um, okay. So, in terms of in terms of scoring, so we have a we have a sort of relatively simple scoring system where, within a single race class, if you come first in a race, you get a thousand points, and the second person gets ninety percent of that value, which would be nine hundred, 
the third person gets 90% of the value of the person above them, which is 810. So you gradually get less and less points as you go down. Um, but usually when we run races, um, we'll normally run, people usually get to race twice. So we may, they may turn up and you may have like a 15 minute race and a 45 minute race. Um, or you may have like a one lap time trial and a one hour race. And often we'll split the points 50-50 between those two races. So depending where you finish in the first race and where you finish in the second race, um, you know, overall collectively, you can, um, you know, that will determine what your overall overall score is. So sometimes you'll get people that are really, really good at a time trial and they'll do one one lap really fast. And then um, and they may score a thousand points in that first race. And then the second person scores 900. But in the second race, which may be an hour long, the second person may be more of like an endurance type rider and they may they may come first. And the person who was first in the time trial may come fifth or sixth. And therefore, the person who came first in that second race can potentially win. So that, again, kind of makes it, you know, sort of sort of interesting. So we get the results and we publish them online and occasionally, occasionally people, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of contest some of the results. And usually uh, by consensus and talking to other people who are racing or by comparing Strava um, details, we can, um, you know, sort of finalise the results. But with this electronic system, there's a lot less of that happens. And, um, and one of the best things about it, if I can have the, the next the next slide, please, um, is hopefully this one here should be a should be an animation. Um, and the results from the timing system are such that although it only measures the time it takes each individual rider to go around the track, what it then does once they've done a couple of laps is it starts predicting their speed. And you can get and so you can actually get like an animation like this showing um showing the showing the riders all numbered and going around the going around the track. And the main I mean this is sort of visually kind of entertaining, but the main value is at the bottom of the screen. Um, Online, we can also actually publish like a lot of the race details for each rider. So you get details of each rider's like lap time, or you can convert that into you know sort of average speed or like gap time between you know between different riders. So um, you know, so people really want to, they can kind of go on and they can they can analyze their results, they can analyze other people's results, and all these things go on the web page and they're permanently there. So if the following year, you know. Someone comes along and races at the same circuit and wants to compare how they did the year before or compared to someone else. They can easily kind of go on and look at all these all these numbers and you know and compare that information. Very so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um so at the end of the season, um we add up we add up all the points. So we run 12 races a year. And what we do is is we take the, the points scored by people for their best eight races. Um and then the people who get the highest points in a particular category um then win that champion win win that category for the championship so kind of kind of the next uh, next slide please so so final final race of the year um we we usually have sort of like prize presentations afterwards and i think here's this is the this is the women's prize presentation uh from a from a couple of years ago um and again so the winners the winners get a trophy which they get to keep they get to keep for a year <laughs> many of the trophies are not are not your standard kind of sort of glossy silver cups uh, they tend to be sort of very unique kind of shapes and structures. And this one here is actually a, this is actually a fish on a bicycle. And um, I think the history behind this one and the saying behind it is that um, a woman leads a man like a fish needs a bicycle. So that's kind of the, you know, sort of the story behind that. But um, but yeah, so there's a there's a number of sort of different, you know, kind of quite unusual um, trophies that we uh, that we have. And uh, next slide, please. And this this one here is just one more example. So as well as all just about the racing. Um, 
you know, we recognize those that come into sort of misfortune. So we have this, this trophy called the unfortunate Scotsman, which we give out every year. And this that's for the rider who's had the, the most bad luck within that year. And that bad luck, sometimes, hopefully, it won't be like a bad crash. Often it's things like um, multiple bearing failures, failures on a bicycle or numerous punctures. Um, or it could even be, you know, sort of trying to get to races and, you know, having their car break down kind of three times on, a, you know, on occasions in a, in a season. So, so every every season we also push out a, um, like an unfortunate Scotsman trophy as well. So there's a big blend of what goes on there. Is There is racing and if people want to race and race just to race, you know, they can they can do it. But there is like a real kind of big sort of social element as well. And it's about making it accessible to as broad a spectrum of people as possible. So it's not about it's not about being like elite athletes. You know, there's some very fit people in the club in terms of sort of like sort of speed. You know, we've got you know we've got people in the 70s and 80s. We've got juniors. And, you know, we've got juniors. We allow people to race from about 11 years 11 years upwards. Um, some people turn up, you know, to race and sort of test themselves, test themselves against other people, and others just to kind of sort of you know for the social element, just to kind of come along and like sort of ride along with others on a on a track it's, it's just wonderful what a, yeah what an important feature to what you guys do and you've taken it to such enormous lengths and the technology that you've implemented now really seems to make a difference too chris so thank you very much for sharing that uh, that uh, new the new part of the british human powered uh club uh and and what they do as far as racing goes so all right chris thank you let's move along now if we could to one of the other major endeavors of the club and that is designing and building hpvs and for that we've got a designer and builder extraordinaire himself who's going to tell you about what he's done and what some of the other builders have done over the years uh barney Let's uh, let's have a look at your slides, if you would, uh, and uh, and take us through uh, some of the things that have been built. Yeah, it's it's worth saying, Gary. You know, the reason I got into this was innovation and and being amazed at what people built. This is my first recumbent, and I, I've got to say it's not mine. I didn't build it. Um, a friend of mine who was a civil engineer managed to borrow a length of scaffold tube, and that is a length of aluminium scaffold tube. So the first thing I ever rode as a recumbent was a tandem. Um, hence some of the other photos we may, may see later. Um, so I'd like to cover a few of the innovative builders of the club and some of the innovative techniques we use. So next slide, please, Trey. This is Mike Barrows. Now, Mike first came to my attention and the attention of many British people when he built this, which, yes, it's a very much an upright bike, but he launched Chris Boardman's career, um, Tour de France winner, Olympic medal winner, and really a, a game changer for British cycling. We suddenly found success. What Mike's really good at, next slide, please. Next. It is, you know, this was the innovation of the wind cheater. This is what he launched at the Isle of Wight Festival that Dave was talking about earlier. Real novel innovation from the early 80s, and they're still much sought after machines and beautiful to ride. You know, Mike moved on. That's a modern wind cheater. But he started in the early days, next slide, please, with his fared wind cheater. This is the fared speedy, as it's known. You know, this bike still holds the outright record for Land's End to John O'Groats, the classic English test of endurance. 900 miles in little more than 41 hours. And it really is an often overlooked record that he, he achieved. You know, Mike didn't just do two wheels, but on the next slide, he did 
it didn't just do three, he did two wheels. This is Mike's Rat Racer, an icon. This is one of the first bikes that I saw, and I thought, I want one of those. Unfortunately, nobody in the club ever specified one long enough for my legs. And Alan does have some stories and photos of me trying to ride his. But yeah, so Mike built those, sold those for a number of years. Um, but what Mike's then done is he's moved into building his own personal rat racer each year for the last few years. So he's moved from that, the original rat racer, to what is on the next slide, which I think is Genesis, as Mike named it. This has internal chain drive. He has all sorts of wonderful things such as hub-steered bikes, very well-fared, monocoque construction, quite wonderful. One of the advantages or the disadvantages is that every year Mike finishes with that bike. He says that's not good enough. He moves on. So we have a situation where we have the Rat Pack, which is shown on the next slide, where you have club members who've bought Mike's second-hand bikes. And they race round. I think that's Mr. Hamilton in second place there, isn't it, Chris? Yes, it yes. is. Yes. yes. Um, so, And there's a pack of these modern rat racers all racing together. It's quite impressive with half a dozen of them maybe at a time. So that's Mike. And he, he's a, a wonderful, wonderful, friendly chap who teaches everybody everything they need to know about bikes. But... Definitely, the only way to get hold of Mike is to write him a pen and pencil letter. No, no computer skills at all, and he's proud of that. So, next builder I'd like to look at is Miles Kingsbury. Now, this is the King Cycle. This is what Miles launched into the club in the, I think, the late 80s. Other people know better than me the, the dates and preciseness. This was Alan's first racing recumbent. It was my first racing recumbent. And Hundreds of other people in the UK have raced these as their first racing recumbent. Fabulous machines that are used and still to this day sell very well secondhand, and I, I do regret letting go of mine. So the next slide is Miles's iterations. So this is the Wasp. This was very much like the King Cycle, similar style of construction, similar style of seat, but slightly lower and faster. And what Miles then did was he launched something else on the UK market with the Wasp. If we go to the next slide, fabric bags. And it may seem rather funny, but these bags are made of kite fabric. And a number of members have raced many times in these. And it, it goes tight over the nose fairing and over the tail fairing. So, you know, without doubt, the King Cycle was one of the most successful designs uh, for numbers of bikes built. However, the next slide is Miles' iteration, the Bean. This is the probably the fastest bike that Miles launched. There are Beans, Beanies, Beanos, all sorts of one-off iterations of this. And that's a, a carbon fibre monocoque with a steel front-wheel drive system that powers the left-hand side rather than the right-hand side of the wheel. And it's ridden at the minute. Next slide, please by Slash. Steve Slade, works rider for the King Cycle Stable and a gentleman who out of the bike you wouldn't imagine was anything like the multiple world champion he is, but a, a real force to be reckoned with. And I do think that the bike does give him some advantage. It is superb, the aerodynamics and everything else of that bike. So 
like Mike, Miles didn't just stick to two wheels. So the next slide is a bike which I'm or a trike, which I'm pleased to say Miles lent me, and it was the most incredible experience. That is bubble and squeak. It's a birch plywood floor that is only about 20 millimeter, about one inch off the track, perfectly flat floor with um, birch plywood structure and then a polycarbonate bubble on the top. Um, and it, it, it was just the most exhilarating thing ever to be flying into a hairpin, sat in that machine doing well over 30 miles an hour. Uh, real pleasure to be allowed to, to borrow that. But Miles and Mike work together on the next slide, which is a sociable tandem. This is Guy Martin, uh, a famous motorcycle racer from the UK and his cycling buddy. And they set the world record for the tandem at Goodwood Motor Racing Circuit, um, an event that many members of the club were involved with. And you can see the likeness between Bubble and Squeak and that. And then Miles has also gone even further. On the next slide, Miles went into four wheels. This is a, a four-wheel quattro. Uh, it meets the UK specification for pedal car racing, but Miles, more importantly, went into this to be really radical. That's got four-wheel steer, four-wheel suspension, and Mike did Miles did discuss going four-wheel drive even on it as well. So hopefully that's a, a, a view of what Miles has done. Both Miles and Mike worked semi-professionally, sold bikes, um, whilst having other careers. I don't think anybody in the UK could make enough to survive off just the UK market for HPVs. Next couple of guys I'd like to cover are slightly more... They're, they're home-build. These are guys who've worked through it. This is Jonathan Woolrich, who's been mentioned a number of times. This is Jonathan in his very early days of recumbenting. That's a Bickerton folding bike that was modified. Um, you can tell from the age of the photo just quite how long ago that is. That was his Lazy B. In recent years, Jonathan's worked both with his own fully fared Oscar, which is the next slide, um, and Not So, which is the next slide after this. And these are fair, fully fared streamliners. Um, and Jonathan has been absolutely philanthropic in his efforts to get these bikes ready for other people to race. Uh, and it, it's wonderful that there are people in the club who do this. Whilst working on these things, Jonathan's also pursued his own bike for his own racing purposes. The next slide, which is Hocus Pocus. This is a carbon fiber plank uh, down the center of the superstructure. And it's got hub steering, something that very few people have mastered. But Jonathan built this himself. He did all the engineering. Um, so very different and very innovative in his ideas of how he would get there. The last of the home builders I'd like to cover is Jeff Bird. Like Jonathan, he's got some early photos. You know, this is a, a very early photo of Jeff. Um, it demonstrates that he's got well over 30 years of experience. Um, and the next slide is where Jeff came into the world of HPV racing with his short wheelbase bike. Very similar to the format that everybody's used to seeing nowadays. But at the time Jeff built this, there wasn't many short wheelbase bikes. And this is one of those that uses standard wheel sizes. Very accessible. And that bike actually went through my possession at the time. My son raced that in the club. 
Jeff's main customers, though, are himself and his good lady, Fiona. And the next slide shows Fiona's short wheelbase. And then the next one, Fiona's low racer. Um, and Fiona has been a bit of a demon of mine at times. We've raced many a time closely on track. Uh, so, yes, he, he's made some very nice bikes. But he also invested some real effort in this two-wheel streamliner, which is next up. Whilst Jeff made a wonder of engineering this, he never quite got on with it himself. And this bike was a real successful streamliner and still is. It's still in use today by club members. Um, and it helped Claire King win a number of ladies' titles um, and very successful. You can see from the look of that just how much engineering Jeff puts into his things. The next slide is the bike that I'm most used to seeing Jeff on. I met Jeff while he was racing this bike. This is his street racer. It's a commuter recumbent with weather protection, practical rear box that provides storage. Um, and it, it's been a mean racing machine of Jeff's. He, he really has done well on that within those classes. Uh, so the next slide is really gives gives you an idea of what it really looks like in action. And it, it's <clears throat> very much Jeff's personal machine. In more recent years, Jeff's followed the trend and he's decided to go with a Velomobile. This is Jeff's Velomobile. You can see from the appearance of it, you know, this is what Batman would ride if he had a Velomobile. And the engineering of it is absolutely immense. Unfortunately, Jeff just got this on track as COVID came along, so he's not had a chance to fully refine it. And I do think Jeff's going to refine this, and it'll be a, a mean beastie to follow. But you can see from the, the final slide about Jeff, this is how Jeff designs his bikes to the nth detail. CAD, 3D dimensions, everything absolutely perfect. Not everybody... Um, actually goes that way some of us are a little bit uh, rougher so the next slide is one of mine this bike is known as 18 pounds 92 because that's what it actually cost it is designed and built in the jig on the garage floor it's leftover timber it's leftover parts out of the scrap bin but it's fun and i enjoyed it um and it, it's still providing me with some good fun so that is just designed with a pencil and a, a ruler and a tape measure in situ. And as was pointed out to me, if anything goes wrong with the bike, I can take it home and burn it for the winter. <laughs> so that that's built-in timber. There are a number of riders who've built-in timber before, and Jonathan Woolridge often prototypes in timber. The next slide is one that I'm quite proud of. So this is Wilbur. That was my plywood. That's plywood, that bicycle. Uh, and that was my first low racer. Because I'm six foot four, six foot three, and with a 34 inch inside leg, there's not many bikes second hand that fit me. So I end up having to build things that I want. So I wanted an ultra low racer. So I built that one. So alongside wood, another product we use a lot in the UK is Corex. So the next slide shows Corex or Corraboard or Coraflute, as it's known in some countries, real estate sign material um, this is lee wakefield lee built uh, both a velomobile and his next slide uh, a fully fared streamliner out of corriboard lee's been exceptional with his designs of these and he's built them exceptionally well 
He's spent a long time planning them, and he's raced both of those machines before then deciding that, one, he liked Velomobiles, and two, he was capable in a streamliner, before moving on to, to much better machines, more professionally built. And that's something that the home building gives you. And the next slide is my latest project. This is fresh off the, the, the street. This was on the street two weeks ago. That's my £18.92 inside a Corex Streamliner shell. You can experiment. That whole bike and Streamliner has cost me £30 so far. So less than 50 bucks for a Streamliner. And that's some of the fun that we have in the UK with our home building. The next slide shows that they're not all short-term fixes either. This is Dave Overton and his father some 30 years ago with a racing trike that they built. And the next slide is that same trike 30 years later. That trike is still racing. And you can see the quality of the engineering, some of the componentry, the struts, the rear suspension. Real effort went into the original build. And after 30 years, it's still a competitive racing machine. Now, finally, Gary's asked me to put up a photo of one of my other machines, something I'm quite famous for. This is true English eccentricity. So this is Frankenfurter's bunk bed, a vertical tandem recumbent. And a number of people ask why. Well, it is primarily built because I take blind people cycling. And I was trying to tell them about recumbenting and they didn't understand. So I built a machine that would allow a blind person to race in a low racer position. And this is it. And I'm proud to say myself and Chris raced this at Preston a couple of years ago. Uh, we achieved over 20 miles an hour for a one mile standing start time trial. And the only thing that slowed us down was our fear as we went through the corners at that sort of speed. So, Gary, I'll hand over to you. I think Barney, you wanted to show a video. Wonderful. Yeah, look, you know, I see it, it makes sense to me that blind people would be a, a good choice for riding with you on that because uh, I think most anyone who could actually see what's going on would be absolutely terrified uh, to ride that. And uh, speaking of terrified people, I have uh, I have a video I'd like to show you all of uh, a good friend of mine actually riding this a couple of years ago. Larry, if you're ready, let's go ahead and see the Tanda video. And then what you do is you use your hands to protect your crotch from the frame. Use your hands to protect your crotch. So you hold on to there with your pants. Go on, lift that foot and put it through there. Nothing to be worried about. Holy! Oh, hang on. I'll, I'll be a little bit too far. That's it. In the back. You picked a big guy. Uh-oh! What's the front tire look like? Flat. Uh, whoa! It's, it's too one too close! <laughs> what did you have for close. breakfast? Can I ask you that? Uh, uh, beans. That beans. This is what you guys eat. Or Lars, he had beans. You need to <laughs> oh, this is this is uncomfy. <laughs> right, you need to bring your left foot up. Got the metal bar in okay. I expect you to keep your knees together. Yes. And you go three, two, one, go. Whoa! Pedal. Pedal. Oh <laughs> this is so strange. What a sight. Look at this. 
Yes, folks, that is our intrepid director, uh, Lars Kamm, who was riding uh, back in 2018 at the World Championships. Uh, we had a great time. I had a great time because I got to uh, shoot that, uh, the video and not have to ride it. But uh, Lars actually had a great time, I know, and uh, looks fondly upon that. So, Barney, thank you. That was a wonderful segment. Uh, hey, such Teddy. interesting, eccentric uh, bikes. So we appreciate that. All right. Let's kind of uh, finish up here with uh, the, the last uh, of the um, endeavors of the club, uh, which is also really important, and that's their publications. And I think maybe we'll go back to Alan, especially. Alan, uh, a couple of major publications uh, to talk about. Uh, let's start, uh, if we could, with the first slide of Layback Cyclist. There we go. Alan, tell us about the, this magazine and the rest of the publications. Yeah, that's, that's a club magazine. As um, in, in Dave Lavington's bit earlier, he, he said about his origins. You know, Richard Ballantyne started it. It was a, just a very simple publication. And then Dave Lavington actually edited it for uh, quite a while. He, he was editing it when I, when I joined the club. Um, current editor is, is Jeff Bird, who's been mentioned. It's a much more, you know, it's a nice glossy magazine now. It generally contains um, race results and contributions from members, really. I think um, Jeff's always looking for articles. If anybody watching wants to send an article in, and I'm, I'm sure uh, he'd, he'd be glad to see it. Anything, anything recumbent related. Um, yeah, let's see the next slide. You can see what the articles kind of look like. Now, yeah. the let me add, you might have, you maybe you're heading there, but uh, so uh, all of the members receive this magazine or does it cost yeah. extra and is it published only in pr uh, printed or can you get electronically? How does that work? Uh, yeah, so there are four issues of the magazine every year. Members get that as part of the membership. So, I mean, it's a bit of a bargain really because e-membership, e which just gives you PDF copies of the magazine, or which is eight quid a year, which you know that's that's half a pint of beer in London, or it's enough to get drunk up where Barney is. But it's a it's it's a it's a bargain. It <laughs> is, and it's a great magazine, yeah. Yeah. colorful and full of great articles. You guys have some yeah. wonderful writers there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's all we just no, that that one the article you're looking at there was Derek Treadle. You can see he's done. He's one of their regular racers. Been been in the club a very long time. Generally, the race reports are um, yeah, one of us who, who are. We're at the event, we'll just write a few words, send it into Jeff, and he'll he'll make sense of it and publish it. Uh, nice. Yeah, and a few usually a few pictures, okay. but there's there's also some usually stuff about building and riding and just yeah, because we don't only race. Some of us ride on the road as well, and it's uh, yeah, so it's very all good. Sorts of stuff and and then of course another um, prominent uh, publication has to do is it's actually a, a book a manual. Uh, so you want to build an HPV? Yeah, there we go. And yeah. uh, Trey, just go ahead and show us some of the pages as Alan tells us what this is about. This is the fourth edition of it. I'm not sure who did the original, but that <clears throat> latest one has been revised and updated by Mike Burrows himself. Um, it's not a not a set of plans for a particular bike, but it's it gives you you know the background and where to start. It's, it's certainly if, if you're looking at building a bike or just an, an interest in how they're built it's, it's worth having and it's like six six quid i think from um, all this stuff's available on our website bhpc.org.uk which i'm sure there'll be a link somewhere um and yep. it's just online shop um and we, we can send those worldwide so very nice all right and just a couple pictures more here and uh yeah so that's a great manual now this leads me into a question I got via email a couple of days ago uh, that uh, was sent from Robert Harris. And Robert asked, 
Uh, well, first he says, I purchased and read the human power uh, book. Uh, can you uh, ask if there's another book on the way? So that should maybe, uh, Alan, lead us to uh, what else is available publication-wise in general, and are there new things coming up all the time? No new version of that, as far as I know, other than it was updated um, fairly recently, just because in, in the back of it, there's a list of suppliers, you know, sort of where, where you can get odd things from that, that recumbent riders might want to buy, you know, idlers and stuff. Um, I think that was updated last year, year before. But I don't think there's any any plans to completely update that. It's probably it probably doesn't need to be really because that the the main uh, the main points of it aren't going to change. Um, it's been it'd be good to see more home built stuff turning up. That's been one of the big changes during the 18 years or so that I've been involved. Is that when I first started, half the grid was people that had turned up with things they you know knocked together in the shed and. It was, there was a great range of, of stuff from everything from Jeff to Barney. You know, in, in, some stuff was sophisticated and stuff, some stuff was just not. But in, in some cases, the stuff that didn't look very good was faster than the stuff that, that did look very pretty. Right. Um, and the commingling and sharing of ideas, I guess, is something that I think <laughs> is so important. I think that was evident from what Barney was talking about, too, how these ideas the diversity of what you could see at races and all the get-togethers. People look at this, so they see some ideas that make sense for them, share their ideas for other people to use it, which is, I think, so important uh, and so much fun. So, Absolutely. all right. Yeah, I think we're gonna leave it there. Uh, Alan, I'll give you the last word. Anything uh, final to say about it? We're yeah. so glad to have you guys. Yeah, just to say thanks very much for having us. It's been good fun, been good fun preparing for this and, and doing the show. And if anybody wants to come and see us, um, we welcome any human powered vehicle. We even have people going around on those funny upright things. And they, they, they go, okay, some, some of them beat us, which is always really embarrassing. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, but yeah, not for cool. long. So if anybody's over here, if you're not if you're not in in the country, you know, we'll um, as soon as you're allowed to fly back here again, <laughs> make, make sure you've been vaccinated. <laughs> and then and come we'll, on over. Yeah. yeah over, I yeah. plan on doing it myself. So, yeah, well, Alan, we'll thank you, Alan, Barney, and Chris. I didn't mean to cut you off, Alan. I really appreciate you guys coming on the show. And as Alan said, working so hard with me over the last few weeks to uh, – to, sh to share all this great stuff from the British Human Power Club. So, guys, take care. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you so okay. Bye. So long. All right, guys. Let's move along to uh, the latest from Mr. Wizard. Uh, Doug's been talking recently on these segments about how you can fix things on the road when you may not have exactly what you need to uh, to, to get back uh, to get back rolling. So, um, Larry, let's go ahead and see the latest from Doug here. Hey, this is Doug at Bicycle Evolution. We are going to do another one of our series of road fixes to get you home. Uh, we're just going to do today a rear derailleur cable breakage. So right here, I've got a bike, uh, and we're going to uh, start with the rear mech. And what's it? Uh-oh. Wait a minute. This is a cruise bike. Uh, well, maybe we're not going to do the rear mech on this one. Uh, we'll do the front mech on this one because, you know, cruise bikes have the front derailleur over here. Uh, or the front, the rear derailleur in the front, and the front derailleur in the rear. They're just different, but they're great. We love cruise bikes. Uh, and this right here is a brand new uh, Q45 that we've got. So let's start out 
Uh, first, over to something a little bit more simple. Let's go and use a regular mountain bike. We'll come back to this guy later. This is the same on almost every bike. Um, it is two triangles on a pivot point. And the reason they do that is it's got to go back and forth to take up the chain tension down here, and then it's got to go this way across the axle to hit each one of the cogs as it shifts. So what it really does is that there's a cable along in here, and in this bike it's open so you can see it, and this causes it to move. You can see it move a little bit while I pull on the cable. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pedal the bike, and I'm going to shift just by pulling the cable, just like that. So now I've got tension on that cable with my thumb, and we've shifted up to the high gear or the low gear for climbing. I'm going to let it off a little bit, and you can see what happens. So now all I really need to do is keep changing the tension on that cable to keep rotating the rear derailleur. So I can also do it by coming back here and pushing on the triangle like this. So now I've got it back into the high in, into the low gear, the high cog. Let it back to about right here. So now if this cable breaks, all we need to do is find a way to get this to stay in the gear we want it. If we're in a flat area, we might not care. We might just let it sit like this. But if we're in a hilly area, we're going to want it somewhere up along in here. And so let me show you how we do this. We're out here. We're going to look for some Shimano compatible uh, shifting rocks and things. So uh, actually right here we found some good ones. This guy right here looks like it's probably a uh, going to get us number three or number two on that one. And let's see if we can find another one down here. Uh, I don't even remember, but uh, we're in some weird class of rock hound that are actually, instead of looking for a special rock, we're actually looking for something that will fit our derailleur. Oh, and look here, we might hit the jackpot. I got all sorts of stuff here. So, yeah, this is going to work good here. That's going to get us in the gears. Get a couple more of these things. All right, that should be good. Let's go back inside and see what we can do with this. Okay, earlier I went out in the parking lot and I found myself some Shimano compatible shifter cables. Well, Shimano compatible shifters. Since I live in a fairly hilly area here, I'm going to select this shifter because it is more likely to get me in the third ring or the second ring on the cog, so I'm in a lower gear. All right, that was another pause. Now, to get this to work, we're going to put it in our little triangle here. We're going to rotate this out and kind of stick it in here tight so that it fits in and locks into place. And there's a couple of wedges, place the wedges, wedge this thing in here that will work. I may have just gotten it. Make sure it's all in place. We kind of came over a little bit when we started pedaling, so we'll move this back so it doesn't hit anymore. Here we go. And we're back we're between gears there. One more there. I need to go get better sound here. There we go. Now we're in our third spot. 
So we're in a little bit less precarious position for hill climbing and a little bit lower gear on the bike. All right, we have our Shimano compatible rock here. And uh, we've decided to change bikes so you can see what this looks like on a regular recumbent. In this case, I'm going to rotate our derailleur around. And I'm going to slip this little rock into place so that I can get... I'm turn it a little bit better. There we go. So I can get myself into a higher gear you have. Okay, if you'll give it a pedal, it will go ahead and shift up. And that will get us on low enough gear to possibly get home. If you... If you don't have a rock, any old piece of trash you can find on the road can almost work. So in this case, we have a, a Shimano piece of garbage. I mean, excuse me, a Shimano uh, compatible piece of garbage. So we will fold this thing over and make it as tight as possible. This isn't as solid as a rock, but it's going to work. Go ahead and take this out and slip this up in here. All right, if you'll give it a little pedal. Let's get it to shift, and off she goes. Look at that. So all we have to do is stick something in there to hold it in place, and let the spring tension keep the bike where it needs to be. Okay, good. So now we've got a cruise bike here, which has got a whole different configuration, um, but the fundamental mechanisms are the same. In this case, this derailleur moves in and out as it rotates around right here. The problem is that there's no triangle where the where the drop mount uh, the uh, the hang mounts, so we're going to have to get even more creative about how you do that. But basically, we need to make this part of the derailleur go inside here to grab these lar these larger cogs, so that we can climb the hills to get home. Uh, if we pedal, we can find that we could just push this thing, and it'll go right in place. So all we need to do is hold it in place to make it work. Now, in this case, since our shop mechanic's not here, I'm going to borrow his back scratcher, which could be good for any stick or anything else you can find out on the road. And I'm just going to kind of wedge it in here, pull that around like that, set that like that, and voila, we now have our bike perfectly ready for our climbing gear to go home in. And once I start rotating the pedals, it's going to spring out and we're going to fall on the floor. Folks, there you go. So I don't know what to say. <laughs> if, you, if, you, uh, if you're out riding and you find yourself between a rock and a hard place, remember that video that Mr. Wizard. There you go. Yeah, that's it. Doug, sum it up for us. Well, I mean, you know, these, these, are, these are a series of videos of, of what you can do when you don't have the right tools. I mean, there's a million ways to solve this problem when you do have the right tools. Uh, you know, everything from adjusting the limit screws to wrapping, pulling the cable out and wrapping it around and tying it off somewhere. But this was a true fix for a broken shifter cable without any tools. All you need to do is find yourself a Shimano compatible rock. And there you are, ready to go. It doesn't have to say that on the rock. So, uh, all right, Doug. Well, thanks, pal. That's a good one. We'll be looking forward to uh, your next uh, entry next month then, right? Yep. We got a good one for next month, too. It'll be just as much fun. All right. Thanks a lot, pal. All right, Larry, let's have the intro.
Uh, Nina, you're muted. I had that so smoothly set. Uh, <laughs> We're so, not going to do it again. I'm gonna okay. Just, no. I'm giving Real. you the floor. Take I it sounded away, Nina so Paley. good. I sounded so good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is Nina Paley. Welcome to Bike of the Future. And by Bike of the Future, I mean Bike of the Past, which is very relevant to the presentation we got from the British Human Powered Club. This book, actually, uh, I have on my own shelf, and I got it from them. And uh, I called this segment Bike of the Future because I thought perhaps I could make a film about this era of innovation in recumbent bicycling. But uh, now I think what they should do is find a UK movie producer and make a movie about, uh, yeah, recumbents in the UK. Anyway, today I wanted to talk about my bikes of the future, which are primarily easy racers in the United States. If you have a bike of the future, you may have an easy racers bike. Can we get the first slide? Uh, so these, you know, easy racers is no longer functional and bike seat meshes wear out and uh, they do need to be replaced at some point. So I have this... Uh, new bike seat mesh, which was made by recumbent seat fix. Uh, I actually, had, I tried out two different versions of them. Next slide. Uh, here is the new seat back on my tie rush. You can see that this laces in the back. It doesn't go through the actual easy racers holes and uh, it's a nice seat back. I, I liked it. However, on longer rides, uh, my back, which I guess I have a weird back, uh, I found part of my back rubbing against the seat. Next slide. Next. Yeah. So uh, I had the foresight to bring a pillow with me. Uh, this is my uh, recumbent bicyclist pillow, and I highly recommend it. It's a small travel pillow. Next slide. Uh, it mostly lives in my Velomobile. You can see it behind my head there. Uh, I never shelled out for a Velomobile headrest. I just use this thing folded up and stuffed behind the seat, which is why the cover is all sort of shredded up. But anyway, uh, it has now found a second home on my tie rush. So uh, the letter of the month for me is P for pillow, a recumbent support pillow. Uh, the other P I want to recommend is pizza uh, because I also discovered this month that uh, if I eat a whole lot of pizza after a long ride, I can sleep properly. I cannot recommend pizza enough. Uh, sorry that that's about all I got this month, but at least I've been riding again. Spring and is finally here. No, no, that's great. And I, ending a segment with pizza is always a winner as far as I'm concerned, especially as Larry Seidman uh, pointed out to me just as we were starting the show, Today is Pi Day. Ah, uh, yeah, excellent. Yes. Anyway, I would—I I had so much I wanted to say about all the other segments, but I'm so glad I watched today. This was all Good. fascinating. Well, we're always glad to have you with us, and we'll do a discussion another time as we move along. But thank you so much, Nina. We will see you next month. I hope. Okay, we will see you. All right, folks, let's move along here to our sponsors once again, who we'd like to thank. They are TerraCycle, from fairings to headrests, whatever accessory you need, Pat and crew have you covered, and Trailside Trikes. 
If you find yourself in Florida near the Withlacoochee Trail or in Knoxville, Tennessee, check out Andrew's shop and his amazing crew. And Cruise Bike, their patented race and record-proven front-wheel drive geometry changes the rules of cycling. Now, comfort doesn't come at the cost of performance, but fair warning, your cheeks may hurt from smiling. And... Terra Trike and Green Speed Trikes. Your vision, whatever it is, Terra Trike has a trike to take you there. And Green Speed cutting edge designs create performance through Aussie ingenuity and laid back cycles. The top USA dealer for Terra Trike and the premier source for Cat Trike, Ice, and Green Speed. We give you the freedom to ride and. Recumbent CycleCon. Please join us at the 2021 Recumbent CycleCon trade show and convention. It will be held October 9th and 10th at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds in Dayton, Ohio. More info at recumbentcyclecon.com. Okay, guys, we are going to let you know that our next show, which we're still working on some details, it will be uh, April 11th at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So please join us. We'll post the details of, the, of what we'll have on the show here shortly. And how you can support the Laid Back Bike Report is something we like to uh, ask and talk to you about on each show. Please like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on YouTube. And uh, you can also uh, hit the thumbs up and thumbs down, the applause button, all kinds of ways to do it. You can also find out lots more about us by right there, a little white eye popping up and it'll take you right to our website, laybackbikereport.com. You can find out lots more about us there, including how you can support us on Patreon. You can also go to patreon.com slash laybackbikereport and uh, support us for as little as a dollar a month there. So these guys have all done that. We appreciate them. So thanks a lot, Patreons. All right, guys, let's uh, bring everybody up on stage. Lars, if you could. I think we actually have an addition. Did I see Peter actually pop in? Oh, yeah. Hi, Peter. Hi. <laughs> We're glad you could join us. We had a full show until Hansa left, I think, so you couldn't oh, that get was, in. But That was a great piece on the English racers. That was really fun. Those guys are awesome. There they are. Thank you all so much for uh, my crew helping me out on the show and the, the great guys from the uh, British uh, Racing Club. We appreciate Hmm, British Human Power Club who do race. Yeah, well, I guess this is what happens when the show goes two hours. Huh? Uh, guys, thank you all so much for uh, helping us out. Uh, great job on the directing and the slides. And Larry, you're... Uh, your journeyman help is always appreciated. So thanks, guys. All right. So, folks, I think that's going to pretty much do it uh, for today. So um, thanks to those guys. Thanks to all of you for watching this month and all uh, all the months that you watch. Hmm. All the hmm. Thanks for watching every month. And until next time, for all of us here at the Laid Back Bike Report, so long, Bent Riders.